If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 5 this morning. A few weeks ago, before we heard our partners from the Philippines speak, we left off our series of the Psalms at Psalm 4, and there we saw how we could end the day in prayer, what it meant to be able to go to bed confident in our prayers before God, not tossing or turning, but resting in God because of who He is and what He has promised to be for His people. This morning we come to Psalm 5 and we see the opposite side of the coin. David, as it were, has prayed himself to sleep in Psalm 4, and now he is awoke and he is ready to go on the offensive. He is ready to go on the attack, as it were, in the morning. And Psalm 5 then shows us, just as Psalm 4 showed us how to pray before bed, Psalm 5 now shows us how to pray when we rise up. And rather than simply... Not less than that, but, not, but also more than that, resting in God's salvation, David now seeks to advance God's kingdom. In other words, morning prayer is meant to prepare him for action. And I hope after we look at it today that you will likewise be prepared as well. Let's look at Psalm 5 this morning. To the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies." The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you, let them sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. May God bless the reading of His Word. This psalm has much to teach us about what God's people ought to pray, why they ought to pray, and how they ought to pray. So this morning, if you are here and you are struggling with your prayer life right now, perhaps you feel like you're in a rut, or perhaps you've never had much of a prayer life, then I would point you to this psalm and let it be an example for how to approach God. As we think about what David says here, first we need to understand in terms of our praying that it begins with preparation. That, um, you know, this is not the kind of I'm in the middle of a surprise situation and a panic I'm calling out to God. There's a place for that kind of prayer. But here, here this is the kind of systematic daily prayer life that David is showing us. And here we must prepare for God's throne. We must prepare for God's throne. In other words, we must ready ourselves to come before God in prayer. Now, now, what does that look like? What does it mean to ready ourselves, to prepare ourselves before the throne of grace? Well, David shows us four things here. First of all, it means we ought to come with believing prayer. 
We ought to come with believing prayer. Notice to whom David prays. In verse 1, he addresses Yahweh, the Lord. He says he is my king and my God in verse 2. In other words, the Lord isn't just a God or even the God of Israel. He is David's God. He is David's king. And that's how all prayer should begin, with a recognition of your relationship with God. That is to say, if you are one of His people, by knowing that you belong to Him, that He belongs to you, that you're not just praying to some abstract deity, you're not just praying to some amorphous idea, you're praying to God who has made promises for you and for your salvation. If you don't know who God is, then you will not be able to rightly come before Him in prayer. You will not be able to have confidence before the throne of grace. But if we come believing Him, believing His promises, then we will be well prepared to pray before His throne. Secondly, David models that we ought to come with honest prayer. With honest prayer. Across two verses, David uses three expressions to describe his prayer in asking God to hear. He says, give ear to my words, consider my groaning, give attention to the sound of my cry. We will talk about the idea of his words in just a minute, and they convey a certain sense of order. But when he uh, talks about groaning and cries, we're into something altogether different here. This is about prayers that spring from the deep longings of the heart, about perhaps even the painful circumstances in our life that leave us with a deep sense of loss, crying out to God in our pain. And yet this kind of prayer springs from faith in God. It's a faith that knows that we cannot nor need not ever hold anything back. It's okay to come before God with a kind of raw honesty, telling Him, this is exactly how I feel. This is exactly the kind of pressures that I'm facing. The kind of real concerns and fears in life. Number one, because God knows you already. He already knows that's what you're thinking and feeling. Why try to pretend you're not? But more than that, God delights when we come before Him, trusting Him enough to be honest with Him, to say, this may not even be where I should be right now, but this is how I feel. You get a, sort, a sense of urgency to the language of prayer here. And David's okay praying that way. But notice that that's not the only way that he prays. He doesn't just kind of shoot from the hip from whatever is pressing in on him. That kind of raw, honest spontaneity is also balanced out in verse 3. And here we see that David offers purposeful prayer. Purposeful prayer. In verse 3, David says, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you. Now on this last phrase, if you have uh, the English Standard Version like I do, you'll notice there's a marginal note with an alternate reading. Instead of, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you, it says one might translate this as, in the morning I direct my prayer for you. Now, offering sacrifices, lifting up prayers, prayer and sacrifice are pretty big different words, right? Right? Uh, why that big distinction? Why that difference? Well, first of all, we need to understand that the translators are not dummies, okay? Uh, they're not ignorant of these things. And so a lot of time and effort went into determining how they think this should be translated. Part of the difficulty is the verb there has no object. So we don't exactly know what he is offering or what he is laying out before God. But it's also the same verb that's used in the sacrificial system. 
So in Leviticus 1, the verb is used to describe the priest laying out the wood on the altar that he's about ready to set fire and let consume the sacrifices that will be put there. It also is used to describe Leviticus 1, the actual chunks of the sacrificial animal laid on that altar prepared to be offered to God. In chapter 28 of the same book, it's used to describe the priest laying out the showbread in the presence of God. And all this is understand why it's easy for the translators to think that David would be intending to say something about sacrifice. But all that being said, I think the marginal note is actually right. I think that the way we ought to understand this is something like the way the NIV actually translates this and gets it right. I lay my requests before you. The the context in which David is speaking here is in prayer. And I think that what he's trying to convey is while the priests are preparing to lay out the morning sacrifices, he is preparing to lay out his morning prayers before God. Just as the priest does his work in an orderly way, so David is going to set about praying in an orderly way. The question is, how much does our praying reflect David at this point? Perhaps we're quick to pray from the heart, but do we take time to pray from the head? Do we lay out our petitions in an orderly manner, in a thoughtful manner? Dale Ralph Davis makes the point that we often begin our prayers with a deluge of religious jargon sprinkled with some oh lords every fourth or fifth word and ends up we end up with a lot of blah, blah, blah. That's not really prayer at all. If it doesn't actually transgress Jesus' command to avoid vain repetition and empty words in prayer, then it certainly comes very close. And don't misunderstand, we're not talking here about eloquence. We're talking about thoughtfulness. We're talking about purpose. We're talking about intentionality and how we approach God in prayer. Just like the priest regularly, orderly, intentionally fulfilled his duties, so David says that is how he comes to God in prayer, and so should we his people. We ought to come purposefully on behalf of ourselves, our friends, the church, and the world. And when we do, David shows us that we ought to come expecting God to answer. That's what we see at the end of verse 3. We see David offering expectant prayer. Expectant prayer. David says, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare sacrifice for you and watch. What does it mean to watch? Well, it's the same word that's used of the guards that stand on the wall of the city, constantly scanning the horizon for any hint of the enemy approaching. And David says, after he offers his prayers, he is like the watchman, scanning life, looking throughout all reality for any little evidence that God is beginning to answer his request, to fulfill his promises and respond to his prayer. He watches and he waits. He reflects, eager to see the active work of his God. I think perhaps the most remarkable example of that kind of prayerfulness in modern times, uh, I say modern, 1800s, is a man by the name of George Mueller. Perhaps you've heard of him. Uh, Several years ago, a good friend of mine bought me his autobiography. It was a a massive book like this, but it was a, a joy to read through, in part because though he is wordy and goes into a lot of detail about things that I really could care less about, if you buy a modern abridgment, they do the, almost the unthinkable. They only highlight Mueller's prayer life, but they never tell you why he prayed that way. In other words, they gut his autobiography of all of the theological reflection that led Mueller into the kind of prayer life that he had. 
But the point here is about his expectancy. Listen to what he says at one point in his autobiography. He says, quote, I am now in 1864 waiting upon God for certain blessings for which I have daily besought him for 19 years and six months without one day's intermission. Still, the full answer is not yet given according to the conversion of certain individuals. What is he praying for? He's praying for the salvation of certain people. And he's done so daily for 19 and a half years. And he says, so far I've not seen the fulfillment. Therefore, what is he going to do? Mueller goes on to say, I am daily continuing in prayer and expecting the answer. We know for a fact that Mueller prayed for certain people that did not get saved in his lifetime, prayed for over 70 years, but they got, pray they got saved after his death. Even when Mueller was in the presence of God, God was still answering his requests. I think that probably most of us pray for something, maybe once, maybe twice, maybe even for a few weeks, and we see no immediate response, so we lose hope, we give up, and we stop praying for the request. We, 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 we begin to have a very short view of how God might answer our request, and a long view, and when He does not begin to answer our request, the temptation is there to think that our praying is just in vain. We lose any sense of expectancy that God's actually going to answer our requests. Did you feel that way? David didn't feel that way. Though pressed in many times by his enemies wanting an immediate response, he was okay to watch and to wait for God to work. See, expecting God to answer prayer means we don't say, God, I don't know what to do. You need to come down and, and, and take care of this. I, I can't see the end from the beginning. Well, I guess I better go do something. Isn't that how we often are? We call out to God fervently, act, 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 but then we decide maybe he needs help and I'll go answer the request myself in my own wisdom, under my own power, and my own strength. That's not, that's not the way biblical prayer works. If we're truly believing God, if we know Him to be who He is, if we, if we understand the promises that He's made to us as His people, then we're okay to pray hard and then watch and wait for Him to work. Well, David says that's how we ought to prepare ourselves for prayer before God's throne. But then when we actually begin to pray, we must also, secondly, know God's character. We must know God's character. We see this in verses 4 through 6. He begins verse 4 with this word, for. David is telling us the reason he can pray the way that he does. In other words, how he approaches God in verses 1 through 3 is based on what he's about to tell us in verses 4 through 6. David is telling us that he, because he knows who God is, because he know, what, of how he knows God to have acted in the past, and, to, and believes he will act consistently in the future, this is how he comes before him in prayer. In other words, God's character drives the prayers of his people. We've seen that already in the first four Psalms, and we're going to see it many, many times over and over and over again. So uh, if nothing else, you will learn by the end of our time in the Psalms that God's character drives the prayers of his people. In fact, I'll go a step further and say if... If you do not learn that lesson, if it does not become the driving force of your own prayers, then you're never going to actually learn to pray biblically. You won't learn to pray the way that God wants you to pray. His 
character drives our prayers. And in this context, David zeroes in on one specific character attribute, namely the holiness of God. And he begins where most Christians would by saying, you are a God who, do, who does not, you are not a God. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The idea of dwelling here implies permanence. It's the, it's the image of uh, somebody wandering through the desert, finding a good spot near a wadi, and then pitching their tent to stay there for a while and enjoy the cool, clean water. It's about spending time somewhere. And David says, evil has no place like that before you. Evil has no sense of permanence before you. It, it's, like a, it's like a few drops of water spilled onto the hot eye of an oven range. It sizzles for a second and then is gone. There's nothing left of it. And so is wickedness and sin in the presence of God. That's why Hebrews will remind us in chapter 12 that God is a consuming fire. Evil and wickedness cannot stand in his presence. That's why David goes on to say, you are not a God who delights in wickedness. There, there's, understand there's no scenario. There is no scenario whereby sin is ever funny to God. He never delights in, is entertained by rebellion and wickedness. It is antithetical to the very core, the essential nature of who he is. That's why Paul says in Romans 1 that his wrath is coming into the world against all ungodliness. That is God's reaction to sin every time, regardless of where it's found or to what degree or in the context in which it appears. It is wrath, just and righteous, and holy wrath. Having acknowledged that in the context of prayer, hearing David say, you are not a God who delights in wickedness, evil may not dwell with you, is frankly worrisome to me because I think we are so very often unlike God and are entertained by sin. We do sometimes think it's cute and funny. It might be ours, it might be someone else's, it might be something that we see on television, but our instinctive rep response is one of laughter, particularly if it's a sin we struggle with because we don't want to own up to it. Several years ago, there was a, an amazing juxtaposition uh, where this was made evident. Do you remember where uh, David Letterman uh, was uh, found out to have uh, uh, committed uh, several affairs with women that worked for him on his staff? And he, and he made an actual on-air apology in the context of uh, the, the Late Show. And uh, what was interesting was that through, throughout that apology, through certain turns of phrase, the audience would laugh. They would actually laugh when he talked about cheating on his wife. That they, they, they would giggle and snicker when he talked about how he wanted to, uh, to, to bring that out in the open before he was blackmailed in private. And, and, and they would snicker and they would laugh. That there was no context in which they just sat silently, saddened by the infidelity of this man. That, that's the world, but what about the church? About the same time, uh, a, a very famous preacher who was not in any way known for his comedy 
or lightheartedness spoke at a meeting of the, uh, whatever it was, the Association of Christian Counselors or something. This massive, um, this massive conference for Christian counselors across the nation. And as he began to get up and publicly confess that he himself was indeed a sinner, he was not all that he wanted to be. And that he was frankly frightened that he would be found out to be a fraud by all these counselors who could, who could so clearly see through whatever uh, veneer of holiness he might put up. They just laughed. They just laughed. They thought he was joking the whole time. What's the problem? The problem is, the problem is we don't take sin seriously. God in his righteousness and his holiness never delights in it, cannot tolerate it, will always judge it. But that is not the case for us. And so my warning even here is to be careful. Be careful what you watch and what you laugh at. Be careful what you're entertained by. I'm not saying that you boycott television and movies that would probably do no harm to your soul. But I also know that most people will, will not make that commitment. All I'm saying is be discerning with what goes into your mind because it affects your heart. It affects how you think about God and how you live for Him. Notice closely David's next words. They go to a place that at least popularly many Christians do not find comfortable. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Now the specific sins mentioned here are most likely those seen in the enemies that David is encountering when the psalm is penned. Thus David was on the receiving end of wicked men who boast in their own glory, speaking deceitfully with lies about David, thirsty for violence that would come when he was deposed as king. But that being said, you could pretty much pop any sin easily into these verses and you will still end up with the end of verse 5 being true of God. You hate all evildoers. Now, if you type that verse on Facebook, I guarantee you, you will start a conversation. Because we have drank deeply of the well that says, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. Friends, that was Gandhi, not Jesus, not the Lord God Almighty who said that. But it was he who inspired these words on David, truthful words, that he hates all evildoers. Now, there is certainly a sense in which what Gandhi said is at least partially right. God is loving towards sinners. God is merciful towards them. But that does not fundamentally change this fact. God hates evildoers. He abhors those who sin. Why? We just saw it. He hates sin. He abhors sin. He despises it. He judges it. He condemns it to hell. And sin does not occur in a vacuum. Sin is not just something out there floating around. People sin. Human beings make decisions that result in evil and wickedness because it wells up within them. That is why even here, he doesn't just oppose boasting. He doesn't just oppose evil or bloodthirstiness or deceit. He opposes people who commit these things. 
the boastful, a person who boasts, shall not stand before your eyes, David says. You destroy those who speak lies. Not lying, those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. I, I, I want, I want to, to land here hard, not because I'm, I, I just d- delight in God's judgment, but because, because the whole stream of where our culture is running is completely counter to this thought. It, it, it is somehow believed both outside the church and inside the church. Let's just start with us, that somehow God has become milquetoast in relation to sin in these recent times. Whether it's the fact that we're more enlightened now or whatever it is, that somehow God is not quite as judgeful and wrathful. He's not so quite despising of sinners as He once was. But that's not what the Scripture teaches. That's not what God Himself reveals. Sin merits wrath. Evil and wickedness warrant destruction. Notice that David just isn't asserting this to be true of God. This is where it gets very uncomfortable. David is exulting in this truth. David is here praising God because he will judge sinners and not let them go unpunished. Is is that the kind of God you pray to? Is that the kind of praises you offer to God? Or has he been sanitized beyond the biblical picture? Friends and loved ones, this is the God of the Bible, a God who does not tolerate sin. Does he hate all evildoers? Yes. But as we'll see in a few minutes, he also displays great love for them in sending Christ to be their Savior. He is no less a just judge because he sends one to take the place of his wrath for us. Be careful that we do not try to out-God God. Be careful that we do not try to create in our own image one that we pray to. Let us let the Bible speak. Let us let God tell us who He is. And let us come to love and worship and adore, have confidence in and pray to that God. And when we do pray, what shall we pray for? This leads us to the third thing that we see here. Now, finally, David gets to asking for something. And so we see him petitioning God to act. We ought to petition God to act. We see this in verses 7 through 10. Notice this is halfway through the psalm and David actually only now starts asking for something. You see something similar in the Lord's Prayer and I would say it's probably pretty similar, a pretty good pattern. If you're going to learn how to pray biblically, unless you're like my dad one time who was driving through an unfamiliar area in thick fog and there was no post-it sign about the curve ahead, and found himself suddenly airborne in a truck saying, help me, Jesus! And his life was spared. If you're sitting down with your Bible calmly in the morning, don't just launch into asking for things. Spend time preparing your heart, preparing your mind, reflecting on the God that you're about to come before. But when we do petition God to act, what should we ask for? Well, David... David will tell us what he's going to ask for, but first notice how he comes. How does he pray? How does he ask? He asks humbly. He asks humbly. In contrast to his enemies that aren't going to stand before God, who have no place in his presence, David says, but I, I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow toward your holy temple in the fear of you. 
David says, these wicked people, these evildoers, my enemies, they're not going to stand in your presence, but I will. How, David? You're not a man without, without dirty hands. You're a sinner too. But notice, it is through the abundance of God's steadfast love that he will come into the house of God. In other words, David only approaches God in prayer and in worship by grace alone. By grace alone. This is what is meant by God's steadfast love. It is his covenant love towards his elect. David isn't dependent on his own righteousness, but on that covenant love that God has towards his people. And nothing has changed. Nothing has changed in the 3,500 years since David walked the earth and prayed this prayer. Paul reminds us that it's only when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared that he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Even today, we are only acceptable in God's sight by grace alone, by the righteousness that is found in His Son. And since we are like David here, dependent upon God's mercy and love to stand before him, then let this passage serve as a warning. As we come, as we come ready, as we come bold, as we come seeking to advance God's kingdom with our requests fully laid out and prepared before God, let us not come with hubris and pride. Let us not simply point the finger at everybody else and consider all the ways that they are failing and they need prayer. Instead, let us come humbly before God, remembering that the only difference between those outside and those inside God's church is God's mercy and grace. And so when we come, we come humbly and we, we petition God for righteousness. We ought to seek righteousness in our prayers before God. That's the, the central petition of this psalm. What does he say? Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight for me. It's verse 8. Despite what his enemies would attempt by deceiving and discouraging him, David asked that God would guide him, specifically to lead him into his righteousness, that he would make straight his way for David. So what is he praying for? David is praying that God would direct him to live in a way that God wants him to live. It, it is not David's righteousness. It is God's righteousness that he wants to be in. It is God's way, your way, that he wants to be walking straightly in. The petition is very similar to the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, isn't it? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In other words, God, it's, it's the, the negative end of what David is praying here. David is saying, God, I know there is a way in which you want me to live. There is a righteous path that belongs to you that you have laid down, and I want to be on that path. I don't want to be strained to the right to the left. I want to be right in the center, walking straight in your way. You know, there are many times in the, in the Christian life when we don't have a clue what's going on. I mean, I mean we just don't know what is happening. It, it might be like Job, where we're going through circumstances, and he has no clue that Satan is behind all these things, intentionally targeting him. How, how are you going to pray in those times? Or perhaps you're like Paul. And, and, and you, are, you are seeking to serve the Lord as in Acts 16. And he's trying to go here with the gospel. He's trying to go here with the gospel. He's trying to go here with the gospel. And Luke says at every turn, God is denying him. Now, we don't even know what that looks like. 
All we know is he, he, can't, he can't get started in ministry everywhere. And, and he's a bit exasperated. It's like, man, I, what is going on? Nothing is working. How do you pray? What do you do? Maybe it's those times when you've just felt the sting of life in this sinful world. Whether it's in your life personally or somebody else's, there is just immense suffering that seems to make no sense. And it's those times when you've heard the news, perhaps you've been thinking about the news and what happened, and you go to pray and your lips start moving, but nothing comes out because you just don't know what to pray. How do I even begin? I don't know what's going on. Why would this happen? Dale Ralph Davis says that even in those times, we still have verse 8. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Make your way straight before me. There's never a time, there's never a circumstance for you or for someone else that that prayer cannot be prayed with all earnestness. And because it is in God's word, it is his will for our life, we know he will answer it. He will answer it. Seek righteousness. But then third, as we petition God to act, desire justice. Desire justice. Just before this, David has asked God to lead him in righteousness because of his enemies. What are his enemies like? He says, there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. If you've read the Bible before, that should sound familiar. Paul quotes this as part of his, his kind of litany of Scripture quotations in Romans 3 to paint the, the, the picture of total depravity in all of mankind. David has just identified God's hatred of those who sin. So how does he pray against those who sin against him, his enemies? Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. David is praying for nothing less that they be sent to hell. It's asking them, it's asking God to give them exactly what they deserve. And this is the, the, the first time as we're making our way through the Psalms that we encounter what's known as the imprecatory prayers of the Psalms. That is, prayers for God, both in this life and the life to come, to judge the wicked. Now, to be frank, this is a very mild example of this. It's going to get worse as we go through the Psalms. A lot worse imagery of the psalmist wanting the babies of God's enemies thrown into the sea, cast on the rocks and killed. That, that's hard language to deal with in the Bible. And so some write these verses off as non-scripture. So these are not inspired words of God. These are not the oracles of the Almighty, a God of love and a God of uh, of, of mercy and grace. These are simply David and his like seeking to wreak vengeance on his enemies. Okay? So you're telling me that you think you are able to judge verse by verse through all the Bible what is and what is not God's word? What is your standard? How do you make that determination? Just because you don't like it? Just because it doesn't fit with 21st century sensibilities? How do you make that decision? You can't make that decision. These verses are just as much God's word as passages like Psalm 23 and John 3.16 if you believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. And if it's not, why are we wasting our time reading it? 
So what do we do? How do we understand these passages? I just said at the beginning, this is an example for how to pray. Is this the kind of things we should be praying? Well, let's keep four things in mind. Number one, this is how we understand these imprecatory psalms. In Deuteronomy 27 through 28, we see that Israel herself was to be the object of such imprecation by God and the Levitical priests if they rebelled against God's law. In other words, one thing you can't say here is it was the Jews looking for ethnic cleansing to their neighbors. It's not, about, it's not about countries or nations. It is about sin and sin alone. And God says, even if my own people rebel and act wickedly in this way, then may these curses of judgment be heaped upon their heads as well. And in fact, we know that's what happened in part through the exile. Number two, when David and others pray these things, they aren't seeking personal vengeance. Just the opposite. They are coming before God and pleading with him to be the just judge. These aren't just David's enemies. Remember what we saw in Psalm 2? To oppose Israel or her king was to oppose God himself. So when David is praying these kinds of prayers, he's praying them against God's enemies, not just his own. Thus, that leads to number three. These kinds of prayers we see are driven by the prayer's understanding of God's holiness and the sinfulness of sin. Isn't that what David just highlighted a few verses ago? This one character trait that became the foundation for his praying? David is zealous for God's glory, for the honor of his name in Israel and among the nations, and the horror of evil. And the dishonoring of God is what drove these prayers. Truth be told, I think most of us find these a little offensive because prayer is not very offensive to us. We don't have the kind of all-consuming desire because for God's glory, because we tend not to see the world in terms of false gods. We see it in abstract things like money and sex and power. Friends, all those things have existed for all time. But when you go to the Old Testament, they're called things like Baal and Molech and Ashtoreth. When you come to the New Testament, they're called things like Zeus and Hermes and Athena. They were just the embodiment of things like, like sex, power, and money, and wealth, and prosperity. And the same demons, the same, the, 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 the same spiritual forces stand behind those things, even though now we just call it cash. The dollar, the pound, the yen, whatever it is. And the, and the question is, what will be most glorified in the world? That's not how we think. We, we don't think in terms of God's sheer holiness in a way that would, that would see, see it like us falling from space into the sun and just being totally vaporized before we even touched the surface of that massive burning ball of plasma in the night sky, in the day, in the day sky. But David has a sense of this. He has a sense of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of sin. And that's what provokes him to pray such things. That's what provokes him to offer these imprecations. Fourth, most if not all of these prayers are not directed towards struggling believers, but those who persist in their rebellion. In other words, these are not like, well, that guy made me mad. God blast him. Just make him a grief spot. 
That's not the praying. These are the people, whether in Israel who prove themselves not to be believers or whether they are on the, 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 the worshipers of false gods in the nations, these are those who are unrepentant and hard-hearted. And the implication is they will suffer a just condemnation because they refuse to turn from sin and submit to God. Now, more could be said, but we need to get to this question. Should we pray such prayers? Now, I hate equivocation, but the answer is both yes and no. And I'll tell you how. First of all, the answer is no. We should not pray these kinds of prayers if we are driven by anything less than what David was driven by. And by that, remember, the United States is not Israel. The president's not our King David. Christ is our king. Christ is our king. So we are not seeking revenge for ourselves or for anybody else. And if we pray, the, pray, any, pray anything along those lines, then we're sinning. And so in that sense, no, we don't pray the imprecatory prayers of the Psalms. There's a sense in which they were unique in the history of the world because there was only one nation of Israel with God as its ultimate king and his anointed on the throne. But... But the sense in which we do pray this, if we're going to be obedient to Christ's command and pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because by definition, if we are praying for Christ's kingdom to come, what are we praying but that all other kingdoms are laid waste? And that may be by those inside leaving, locking the key in the door and walking away and never going in them again. Or... It might be their total, utter destruction when Christ comes back and sets his foot on the world and puts all wrongs right. If like John we're praying, come quickly, Lord, then that's what we're asking to happen. The hastening, not only of the salvation of God's people, but the judgment of the world. The redemption of God's elect and the destruction of the wicked. And so Paul says, listen to what he says in 2 Thessalonians. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with, repay with affliction those that afflict you and to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and of the glory of His might. When, we, when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among those who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. <coughs> Paul is saying when Jesus comes back, He comes as a mighty judge. And on that day, justice will be served. Today, you're not, you're not going to get it. You might get a little bit, you might get it in part, but perfect justice is inescapable in this world because it's tainted by sin. Every individual, every human legal system is imperfect. But there is a perfect and righteous judge who is coming. And, and when he judges, it is so perfect, so final, that there is no more sin. There, there is no more wickedness. And so as we consider these things, let these two great thoughts permeate your minds and your hearts. First, remember that we ourselves deserve the righteous vengeance of a holy God. 
We cannot say, those guys deserve to get it. Well, look in a mirror because you deserve to get it. There's no sin that is committed by anyone that is not worthy of the wrath of God. And such was our sin. But we trusted in Christ as His people. We looked to Him as our Savior, believing that God judged our sin on Him at the cross. And it's only by that mercy and grace that we escape the wrath that is to come. That keeps us humble and reverent before our Heavenly Father in prayer. He is only our Father because Christ died to bring us to Him. Christ suffered for our forgiveness and grants us the righteousness that we need to stand before Him. But second, remember, now as Christ's people, that He commands us to love our enemies and make disciples. That's how we wage war against sin and evil in this age. That's how we advance God's kingdom. Not by seeking vengeance on everyone who would do us wrong, but by preaching the good news of Christ. For that is the way to tear down the evil spiritual forces in this world by seeing one by one people turn away from darkness and come into marvelous light, to be transferred from the domain of darkness and, 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 and the, the, the kingdom of rebellion against God and come into Christ's glorious kingdom. And so that's what we do. That's how we make war, by preaching the gospel. And we do so with great urgency for we know that Christ is returning. And even as we long for His return and our salvation, Justice in that hour will come for all people. David's been showing us how to pray, and we end with the last two verses, verses 11 through 12. And here, if we are to follow his example, we see that we ought to rejoice in God's care. We ought to rejoice in God's care. David just prayed for the wicked to bear their guilt before God. Then he says, But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. David actually ends with another request here for God's people that they would rejoice in the protecting power of God. That they would only be confident in God's care but they would exult in it. Why? He says, for, there's that word again, for you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. I'm not sure if it's this way still now, but when I was a student at Southern Seminary, uh, one of the first classes you took your first semester was a kind of all-encompassing introductory class to the school, its courses, its teachers. And one of the requirements was to read a, a series of, uh, of various classic uh, booklets, and one was by the German theologian named Helmut Tillicke. To be honest, I've never read anything else by him. But I love that book called A, a Short Primer for Young Theologians. But I recently found out that he had a pretty interesting life. And in his autobiography, Helmut talks about being a boy of about 10 years old in school. And there was another boy in his class in Germany named Hans. And many people did not like little Hans because school came very easy for him. Though he would hardly be seen reading a book, listening to the teacher, fiddling under his desk. If a question was ever asked, Hans' hands went up and he knew the answer. He never studied, but he got good grades. And at least according to Helmut and his friends, in their eyes, Hans was perhaps a little arrogant about it. So they plotted to take him down a peg. They were going to gather together before school, and on the way in, they were going to grab him, rough him up, and all for being smart. Isn't that how bullying works? But Helmut says, as they were lying in wait, something unexpected happens. Hans' father walked him to school that day. 
He says, now, in contrast to little Hans, his father was one of the most well-loved, well-respected men in all the community. No one had a negative thing to say about this man. And so there they came, hand in hand, walking to the school. And then before they departed, Hans' father looked down with great affection in his eyes and rubbed his head and stroked his cheek and began to, to part. But, but even as they left, both Hans and his father would frequently stop and, and look back and wave at each other as they departed. And suddenly all of that anger, all that bitterness began to dissolve. And he said, though his gang of friends, they never discussed anything. There was this realization in them all that, quote, whoever was loved by such a father stood under a protective taboo and could not be bothered. Such is the love of the one true and glorious God for his people in Christ. Taking refuge in God is not like running under an awning in a rainstorm. It's not just temporary. The refuge of God is lasting and all-encompassing. We can entrust everything in our life to Him, knowing that He will bless, protect, and save us. And David says, may that be our joy. May that be what leads us to exult with praise before God. With such assurances, may we, his people, begin each day with confident prayers for ourselves, for the world, as we seek to advance his kingdom until Christ returns. Father, we are so thankful for your word. We're thankful especially for this book of Psalms, which doesn't pull any punches. Father, it shows us the, the full range of our experience as both fallen and redeemed humanity and how we deal with the world around us. Father, we're thankful that you're not a God that expects formed prayers and meaningless words to try and rouse your attention. But in saving a people to yourself in Christ, you've adopted us as your sons. And so now with all of the, the confidence that a son would have coming to his loving father, with all of the assurance that the father desires good and to, to give good gifts to the Son, may we come before you in prayer, honestly, perhaps even spontaneously and with much passion, bring our requests before you. But God, help us remember that you're not just a Father, you're also our God and our King. And you've given us directions on how we ought to live. So Father, help us also to be thoughtful in how we come. Help us to remember that we're not saved as an orphan, but Father, we are adopted into a family, a family of brothers and sisters far too numerable to count that stretch from every nation on this world. May we pray for them and their well-being as, as well. And Father, if we ever wonder in the midst of difficult circumstances, if we ever wonder in the midst of, of trying times what we ought to pray, then let David be our example, God. Let us seek to advance your kingdom, even if it's just in ours for that day, by praying for you to lead us in your righteousness, that you would make your way straight before us. We ask it in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.